welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a transformational practitioner and coach living in the UK. Hey folks, welcome to another episode. I hope you're all doing well and starting to venture out and do some things that feel safe and good now that lockdown is easing a little. I'm going to jump straight in this week and introduce my guest. They are someone who trained at the same coaching school that I went to, Animas, and um, they posted in one of the Facebook forums one day about something they were doing. And <laughs> I looked into their work and like the way they talked about what they do, I just thought, oh my goodness, this person I need to have on the podcast. And I'm so pleased that I did invite them and that they said yes. So let me tell you a bit about them and then we'll get started. So my guest today is an experienced BDSM educator and kinky stand-up comedian. He's been in the fetish community since 1995 and in 2003 he became the 25th and only British winner of the International Mr Leather Contest in Chicago. Since then he's worked as a BDSM educator, kinky comedian and life coach around the world. In his life coaching practice he supports people who identify as outsiders and why that is will become clear as we talk. So allow me to introduce you to the wonderful John Pendle. Hi, John. Hi, I'm, I'm John, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Um, so as you've already started to do, I always ask people to introduce themselves um, just to kick us off. So it'll be great to hear a bit more about you. Okay, my name's John. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I am a dog person, but I own two cats and I live by the seaside in the south of England. Great, thank you so much. So um, where to begin? I guess it will be really interesting to hear like what your, I guess what your experience has been over time, because I know you were a comedian up until relatively recently. Um, I don't know if that is still like a main way that you would identify, but because of the pandemic and everything that was going on, I understand you've made a shift towards coaching and kind of um, your work looks different now. So it'd be really cool to hear how that came about and what it looks like. Okay, so how I identify I've divided in my head into decades. So the first 20 years of my life, I identified as a straight white man because I was raised in a church and there was no other option. It wasn't like somebody said, oh, you could be gay. No, you were straight, just struggling with your sexuality. So I realized now they worked out I was gay about seven years before I did. And looking back, I had what I would now call gay conversion therapy. But at the time, it just seemed like there were very loving people who were praying because I was confused. That's how I framed it in my head. Mm -hmm. So that was 20 years. And then in my, uh, then I, I turned 20 and I met a gay guy and I went, oh, that's what I am. I'm one of them. I'll be that. Headlong, straight into that, realised that I wasn't a very good gay. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like mirror balls. I don't like distractions. Don't like lasers. Don't like loud noises. Even champagne corks popping. Can't, I have to have fingers in my ears. Um, I don't really dance because I have no coordination. So I had 10 years of waiting for the magic to start and it never did. So as my 20s, identified as gay. And then in my 30s, I accidentally won a competition in Chicago. I'm sure you're going to bring up. And I, <laughs> I went around the world and I realized, oh, I'm kinky. I will define myself now as kinky. So I had, uh, I really went for that. So I'm going to do it. I do it properly. I became a BDSM workshop educator. Uh, that will get me invites to all the kink events to teach. And I loved it. And then in my 40s, I got into therapy. And very quickly, my counsellor said, have you ever taken any tests to see if you might be autistic? 
and I realized what I actually am is autistic. And a lot of the things I was looking for in kink that were satisfying me, like structured introductions, where you negotiate and there's rules and some of it's very clean and some of it is uh, very much getting your thoughts into your body. It was all because I was autistic. And so now in my 40s, that's how I identify. And I'm two months off 50 and I'm terrified. What am I going to discover next? Oh, my gosh. I think that's the best introduction I've ever heard from anyone. And also like, yeah, hearing about how that's progressed. It just feels like so many light bulbs and moving into like different phases I wonder what's next do you have any inkling (laughs) oh that's made my hands sweat oh no sorry (laughs) you're seeing the other video for anyone listening in my hands have become very sweaty I don't like unknown so I like rules and order and I like to know what's going on Mm -hmm. so the thought that there might be another revelation is awful (laughs) well it sounds like you've been through a huge amount of self-discovery so I wonder at this point, if there is really much, obviously there's always stuff to uncover about ourselves, but I wonder if there are any kind of bombshells that you might not be aware of just because of, um, you know, doing all of this work, it, it kind of requires you to dig into that stuff. Yeah, I'm sure there will be, but I'm in no hurry. <laughs> it yeah. takes me about 10 years to unpack any revelations. So let's just breathe. <laughs> <laughs> also remembering that they are all huge revelations that like a lot of people don't ever have to even deal with so like the fact that you've had you know multiple that's really um it's a lot but it's super interesting as well um and I kind of want to like rewind I bet people listening are going to have lots of questions about different parts of what you've shared one of the the things that really um kind of made me want to talk to you well about your work was essentially that like combination between um kink and BDSM and coaching and I really relate on that like sensory input level that that feels really good, like different sensations. And um, that's something that I guess some people aren't really aware of. So maybe if you're happy to like outline what BDSM is for anyone who is listening, who may not know, um, and then we can talk about Mr. Leather. So uh, the actual four letters BDSM, uh, three pairs of letters joined together and talking to different people around the world, they all seem to give them slight variations of what it means. And I think I was taught it was kind of bondage and discipline, domination and submission, and sadism and masochism. You can't <laughs> suck them together. But really, it's any any kind of sexual activity more than Victoria Wood would describe at the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> and that's kind of my barometer, because it's variable. One person's kink is another person's completely normal. And... You know, somebody may just over a glass of wine share something they do in the bedroom and you look and go, that's kinky. And they deny it because they don't use that language to describe it. So it's a very movable feast. But I think pretty much what most people would consider mainstream sexual activity, Victoria Wood would say at the Royal Albert Hall. And if it was outside of that, it's probably kinky. Yeah, that's such a cool way to look at it. And what has that exploration been like for you? Because obviously it's taken you into worlds that maybe you were, well, I guess certainly growing up in a um, religious environment certainly would not have been aware of. Yeah. Um, I think I may be one of the only people to win International Mr. Leather that had never held a flogger or knew how to hit somebody with a flogger. A flogger is, it's got a handle and then strips of leather coming off it, usually leather. And it's, it's a bit like an adult version of a pillow fight. You know, you're just thumping it on their back, usually. <laughs> and people couldn't believe when I began to travel as International Mr. Leather, because you take a year off if you win, 
and you're then the international sex ambassador for a year. How clueless I was, like I, I went to kink events and I just, my eyes were saucers. I didn't know any of it. And so people were very happy to tell me. It felt a lot like being Charlie in the chocolate factory that I'd got the golden ticket, but I was also trying all the sweets. <laughs> and I was loving it. But I think maybe due to the autism, I was also writing it all down and trying to process it and work out rules as to how it worked. And that made me quite a good workshop facilitator because I could actually say, in a scene, I've broken it down. There are five stages to go through. And to somebody to whom it came naturally, they might not have analysed it that way. But because I was always looking outside through a window, I was always trying to work out, well, what is the flow chart that describes this behaviour? Yeah, it's so helpful to actually codify things in that way, isn't it? Because then there is some kind of a guide that people can look at and use, because otherwise it's a very, um, it's kind of like, I don't know if this is the best way to describe it, but it's, it's there's a feeling of it being like an inner circle. And unless you know, you don't know. <laughs> so you have to like have a certain level already to feel comfortable in those spaces. But that obviously it's a bit like a chicken and egg situation. Where do you get that experience if if it's a very closed kind of inner um, group of people so yeah that that sounds really cool and um I guess from a sensory perspective what was that like because there's so I mean obviously that's if sensory play is even something that you're interested in but that can be really um really helpful for autistic people to like get sensory input in those kinds of ways well it's a kind of paradox because on the one hand autistic people can be very sensitive to things outside of their attention tunnel so a dripping tap could absolutely drive an autistic person nuts. They might sleep with earplugs because they need the room completely silent. Blackout lines. Um, I know I can't watch TV if there's certain lights reflecting on the screen. I have to have particular lights off so there's no reflection on the TV. So if it's outside what I want, I can't cope with any sensory input. And I have a very I have to control the heating in our house. I have a very narrow window that I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I love overloading when it's a sensation that I do want. So if it's in my attention tunnel, so I have played with stun guns in certain parts of my body. Um, but again, like it has to be a part of the body I do want, say a major muscle group like a thigh, that's fun. Part of the body I don't want, couldn't take a single volt. It's quite specific. Mm -hmm. So... Yes, there are things that autistic people might love to get themselves into their body, like sleeping under a weighted blanket. But then a ticking clock could just be, no, I've got to put it out the room. Yeah. There are, yeah, there's certain kinds of sensory play that I absolutely loved, and it tended to be the stuff that was quite clean. Um, I once worked as a glass collector in a fetish club because I love the fact something had been through a hot wash, and I'd done that. <laughs> So I, I tended to go towards the clean things that you can do and sensory overload when it was my choice and in my attention tunnel and I wanted it. But even then I was quite particular about how I had it. Yeah. And that's where consent comes in, isn't it? Because I think some people feel like people who maybe aren't involved in um, kink may not understand that consent is such a huge part of what is involved. Yeah. Um, and I guess that when things like sensory um, 
what's the right word when there are sensory things to consider or like anything else knowing that you are able to consent or like stop at any time is really important in that um and I think that's something that maybe in like mainstream sex isn't necessarily encouraged or isn't as talked about well a lot of the shows comedy shows that I took to the Edinburgh Festival I was trying to educate audiences on uh, active consent more than just a yes no upfront. And I can remember getting heckled in one show because I was saying how key it was during kink that consent was a moment by moment gift that anyone could withdraw. And somebody who wasn't kinky heckled me from the crowd and went, it's like that in, in vanilla sex too. And I just stopped from the stage and went, um, in all my years doing vanilla sex, I never once saw somebody in a high vis jacket patrolling the hotel conference floor, making sure that consent was adhered to. Like a nomin- they call them a dungeon monitor. It's just a volunteer in a high-risk jacket. <laughs> like that's the level kinky people will go to. They'll actually have a consent monitor in the room. I've never seen that in vanilla sex. Now it might happen, apologies if I missed it, but I tried it for 10 years and I never once saw someone in a high-risk, you know, like making sure if there was a, not just individual safe words between you and your partner, which is something you might agree, if I say this, you stop. Like Barcelona, Theresa May. But also at, at large events, they quite often have a group safe word that is understood by all attendees. So if somebody in a group play space shouts the word red, everybody knows it's an emergency alert. You know, stop. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having those like agreements and guidelines in a space are really, um, it's probably the first one of the first spaces where I felt really um really safe even though I was in a room full of people I didn't know um yeah I, it's it's something I think to be experienced that if you if people haven't then it's really it's something <laughs> um so thinking about Mr Leather then I'm wondering what made you run for it considering it wasn't necessarily like something you were super involved in at the time I think if you grow up as an outsider so that's somebody who might have been Um, lesbian and sent to boarding school or autistic in a mainstream school but you have spent your life trying to hide who you are it sometimes can come out that you end up being a bit of a people pleaser and I went to a fetish club every week for 10 years and I was so grateful that they let me go even though I was paying to get in (laughs) you know I would have done any this is where I I became the glass collector I would have done anything and one weekend they said it's the Mr Hoist competition just giving away the name of the club there and um the prize money is quite good and it means we get people turning up to compete who've never been here before and we're worried we'll never turn up again it would be nice if there was a regular in the lineup would you be that person and i said yes and then the lots are drawn randomly and i picked number one and i thought okay well i'll go up you, you just stand on a pair of oil drums and a bit of wood and you heckle the crowd or they heckle you it's it was barbaric because you were holding up everybody's fun. They were having a perfectly pleasant evening before all of a sudden they had to stop what they were doing and look at these, you know, wallies on a, on a bit of board. <laughs> and I got up and I thought, well, I'm the first one. If I go up with low energy and apologetic, everyone else will match me. Whereas if I go up in the persona of somebody larger than life, and very confident to be here, the other people who are, you know, one of them's going to win, they will have to match me. So I went up full of bravado and I heckled the bar staff and I heckled the crowd. And you only have 20 minutes, uh, 20 seconds really to make an impact because it is a popular nightclub and this is a small bit of the evening. 
and I got down and then it turned out it was a crowd vote and everybody who was in the club had a bottle top and they got to put it in the numbered box of the person they liked the most. And to this day, I don't know why. I suspect, how broad-minded are your listeners? Very. <laughs> I suspect it helped that I'd had sex with everyone in the room. <laughs> For some reason or other, I had the most number of bottle tops. And that meant I had, as a side effect of winning that, qualified for International Mr. Lover in May. Wow. And I'd never <laughs> been before. I didn't know what it was. I'd heard of it. But I, I didn't know it was the sixth biggest convention in Chicago that has now run for over 40 years. And before the pandemic, 18,000 people would go. I didn't know that. Yeah. I just knew, oh, I've, I can go do this again in Chicago. So you turn up in Chicago <laughs> to this yeah. like massive international competition and then what? Yeah. Uh, so I only took with me borrowed leather because apparently you had to, it wasn't enough to be in cheap leather. You like, if you, if you're on stage wearing Tina with New York, it had to be the original Tina with New York, it had to be original language. I had people who dressed me who went, you need a, you need this outfit, you need that outfit. And it's a good idea to get it several inches bigger than you. So basically the jeans I could pull on and off without undoing the belt. I mean, these are like, I was so clueless. I didn't take baby oil and there was a physique round. I was truly a fish out of water, but I had this autistic mind that prepared to the nth degree. So between Mr. Hoist and International Mr. Leather, I had been cramming for three months and I'd learned how to lay out a pattern on a hide. And I'd learned all the judges' biographies and any organisation they were part of. I'd learned a training pack for that organisation. Wow. I learned about sexually transmitted strains of gonorrhea. I learned the name of every international Mr. Lever that had gone before me. You know, I, I knew my stuff out my mouth. I just didn't feel like I fitted physically. And then it turned out international Mr. Lever is 10% what you look like in leather. Well, that, they dressed me. 10% percent <laughs> 10 what you look like out of leather. And I was very hyperactive when I was in the jockstrap because I didn't feel confident. And watching the video back, that actually helped because all the bodybuilders who came out and thought their body would sell it for them looked very wooden and boring. And all the people came out like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh and were <laughs> bouncing all over the stage and pulling on nipples and grabbing crotches and waving at the crowd. We actually filled the time and they were judging you on, are you good to look at with no clothes on? Well, my inner child was screaming, but apparently that didn't come across. It just, <laughs> I looked like I was having fun. So if you can fake it, that's good enough. And then 80% of the points are what comes out of your mouth. And that I had crammed for three months and I managed to come up with some good points. That's so, so cool. I just imagine if this, imagine like almost a Rocky montage of you like doing all the things, like memorizing everything and preparing. It sounds like so much work. And I wonder, did you, when you went, did you want to win or was it like, oh, well, I've been entered for this thing. I guess I should like swat up a bit. Now the Baptist side of me kicks in because the Baptist upbringing never leaves you, even though they kicked me out. But that whole thing of um, don't boast, don't put yourself up there. So mm -hmm. the Baptist side says I should be really humble and not say I was extraordinarily competitive. But I think <laughs> moved, we have moved beyond that now. I was extraordinarily competitive and I was I was there to do the best for the club that sent me. Mm -hmm. Whether or not I won, I just didn't want to let them down. I think that's true. Yeah. 
yeah, so there's a lot of people pleasing, isn't there? Like getting up on the stage in the first place to do it and then being sent to the US to do it because like you didn't want to kind of let them down and not yeah. that you didn't want to take part, but like, yeah, it's really, it's funny how we end up in those situations um, that maybe through like conscious choice, you might not have chosen to be yeah. involved in. I can remember when they announced the winner. It was the the, the, the whole internationalist lever year that I did it was five days long. And the finals on the Sunday in a downtown Chicago theater that had gone dark for the day. So we, like some musical had taken a pause and we'd moved in and it ran for five hours. I mean, Miss World is nothing on international Mr. Lever. It's a long old show. <laughs> and at the end, this guy came out to announce the winner and he announced the second runner up and the first runner up. And I had my hands raised, ready to applaud the winner. And there was no fold back speaker on the stage. We couldn't actually hear. We were reliant on numbers coming up on monitors, video screens. So he said, and the winner is number four. And we got the echo off the back of the theater and couldn't hear what it was. So I started applauding, looking round, like who's going to come forward and stand on the podium. And nobody did. And then 31 appeared on the TV screen. And I thought that is weird because I have 31 written on my leg. But I still didn't put two and two together because it's yeah. not going to be the shy little Baptist boy from Watford, England, who can't ride a Harley, doesn't smoke a cigar, doesn't have a hairy chest, <laughs> isn't a bodybuilder, is not going to be me. So I carry on, ready to clap, still looking around. And then somebody tapped me on my shoulder and I got out the way to let them through. And I turned round to go, OK, through you go, because you obviously need to pass me. And he was like, no, no, it's you. <laughs> and I was so late to the podium, I was nearly killed by the indoor fireworks. <laughs> so it just wasn't going to be me. <laughs> that's so oh it's such a good story <laughs> thank you for sharing it um and I guess like thinking about that experience and then um you mentioned kind of existing in a or existing on the periphery or feeling like an outsider in spaces and I guess that's what's brought you from Mr Leather to now well I guess first of all comedy and then into coaching um and I wonder why it feels so important to you to kind of support people who feel as though they're on the outside. Um, because I know how it feels. I think part of the route to healing is meeting somebody who allows you to be you, even if it's for an hour. And it can take, the reason it can take a number of sessions is that you're undoing a lifetime of being squashed. But that healing of just, I don't even need to ask any questions or do any exercises. We just spend an hour where I get them. And that sounds really big headed, but it's because I've been on a journey too of undiagnosed autism, gay conversion therapy, you know, feeling like I wasn't part of the cool crowd. Your journey, if two autistic people meet, they will have had very different journeys. And I'm not arrogant enough to think I know how it was like for you. But as you tell me, I can keep that space between us. And at the end of the hour, you can say, it was nice to be with someone who got me. And I think that's where healing begins if you've never had that before. Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes a huge difference. And I think, I don't know about you, but what, like being aware of neurodivergence and like other ways in which I'm different it has felt really difficult at times to find people who get me um, in a professional capacity so like it can be really hard to find like um a queer non-binary therapist for example and they definitely do exist and now I know lots of them but when you're um not really involved in that community it's really hard to find people to actually have those spaces with um 
And even if you're able to afford therapy, you may be explaining everything to someone who is like straight, middle class, white, um, cisgender, and like doesn't get the worlds or the circles in which you move, or you may not move in any of those circles and you may just, you know, perpetually feel like an outsider. And that in itself, um, it's hard to find people, I guess, that can relate around that unless people are explicitly talking about those are the spaces that they provide. Um, so I think that's it feels really powerful kind of ex, uh, discovering your work and seeing what you do, because I think there is lots of overlap in um, the ways that we work. And I guess the people that we're hoping to support as well. Yeah, um, just I, I'm not going to pathologize somebody for being pink. Whereas if you go to a non kinkaware therapist and tell them I'm autistic and I've had some trauma, they may say, well, the trauma is expressing itself as kink. And when we heal the trauma, you won't be kinky anymore. Like the kink was a byproduct of a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, yes, I do know some people who have gone through bereavement and are now feeling numb and have wound up in a kinky play space because they want to feel something. So, yes, I can see that bit's true, but that doesn't extrapolate to everybody else kinky who's been through trauma. So sometimes you just need a kink-aware therapist or a neurodiverse-aware therapist, or somebody who can sit there and create a space where there is understanding and you don't need to explain. Yeah. So I've had, I've had clients come to me who said, as a byproduct, you know, like as, as an aside, I've been through gay conversion therapy. I've been able to say, me too. And we didn't need to say any more. And then we just held it for a moment. And they went, so you understand. Now, I don't know their particular experience of it, and it's up to them whether or not they want to tell me. But in that moment, they're with someone who gets it. And that seems yeah. to be the most powerful part of the work. Yeah, it's so powerful. Yeah. Hello. Just popping in with an episodely reminder to take a few breaths. You might like to grab a drink of water. And also just check in whether you've been to the loo recently. If you're anything like me, you may be focused on something. You might need a bit of a reminder just to get up, go take a break. And while you're doing that, or maybe when you come back, uh, just to let you know that I have a monthly newsletter. If you'd like to sign up, you get basically all kinds of cool stuff and information about what Quiz and Co people are doing, uh, what things I'm enjoying and recommending, and also uh, some journal prompts and all kinds of other things. All you need to do to sign up is head to gemkennedy.com and you can put your email address in at the bottom of all the pages, I think, on my website. And then you'll be on the list. And anyone who's listening to this live in the week that John's episode comes out, my newsletter will be out this week. So look forward to that. And now I'll let you get back to the episode. And I think one of the things that... um. Yeah, I guess one of the things that is also really important is how we can be, and I, I think this term is like used a lot now, but how we can sort of ally with other marginalised groups to make sure that, um, you know, we are supporting their causes and whatever it is that they're working towards. And I know that you have talked um, publicly about JK Rowling and um, have personal experience kind of based on what happened to you being gay in the 90s and kind of seeing how that is playing out now and with how people are treating the trans community I wonder if um yeah it, what that's been like for you and maybe where um when you first read J.K. Rowling's essay for example like how it made you feel because I, I 
had an insight into that in reading some writing that you shared. Okay, so I'd like to start with recognition that I'm cisgender and being asked to talk on a trans issue. And there will be members of the trans community who don't want me to do this and would rather mm. I shut up and gave them space. And I completely understand that feeling. You've asked me a direct question on how it relates to my experience. And so if I can just touch on that yeah. without sucking oxygen out of the debate that should really be answered by somebody else. When I came out as gay in the late 80s, early 90s, it was the height of homophobia, section 28, don't die of ignorance. It sold newspapers. It was not just on the front page of the paper. It was usually in the front 17 pages of any tabloid. Uh, you know, when Elton John gets married, he takes it up the aisle, just relentless. And whenever you try to say to somebody, this is homophobia, their defense was, no, we're protecting the children. Like we're not attacking gays, we're just protecting the children. So the fact that somebody was the funny man down the street, we're not having to go at him for being a bachelor, we're protecting the children. And that was their defense against homophobia. And it sold a lot of papers. And I'm sure it got the Tories in power for longer than, you know, it pressed a button in a section of the population that were happy to have that fear fed. And now I see exactly the same emotional feelings happening towards the trans community. And I'm going to include in that cisgender drag queens who, when they read story time for kids, get the same treatment of, um, oh, it's not that we're transphobic. Now we're protecting the women. Think of the women who don't want to have to deal with men in their spaces. It's not that we're transphobic, we're definitely protecting the women. And it just seems like you can defend your bigotry by making out you're defending another group. And I'm seeing that replicated. And yet again, it's selling newspapers. And yet again, it's used as a political football, the whole war on woke. My attitude is, can we make our decisions based on what is treating people with dignity? You know, trans folk have been allowed to use the toilet of their choice in this country, I believe, since 2010. But it's only 10 years later, it's now this political football headlines on newspapers, the toilet issue. It's difficult answering J.K. Rowling specifically because she's claiming to be writing from a place of trauma. And I as a cisgender man, I'm neither a woman who's been attacked by the patriarchy, nor am I a trans person. So what on earth am I doing in this debate? But I think my voice is, be careful you're not replicating the damage that was done to the gay community, where it's just coming, you're disguising bigotry as protection of another group. And also, if we look at the places where they have brought in toilet rules, and there have been some places where they've done it, it's not just attacks against trans community members that have gone up. It's also against women who aren't gender conforming. Cisgender women who are perhaps taller than society would like to be. Their voices are deeper than society would like to be. Their, their body silhouette is blockier than society wants it to be. Their Adam's apple might be more pronounced than society. Those are the people who get attacked. And yet you claim you're defending women and protecting women. But by bringing in a toilet law, suddenly everyone's under suspicion who's not a beautiful you know, as society would like, woman who can pass as a woman. So apologies if I've waded into an argument I have no right to be in, but 
I feel some empathy because of what I went through. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And I think having that awareness around, um, you know, not not taking up space, but actually allying to share past experiences and to share, you know, like this is what it was like for the gay community in the 90s. And you can see patterns repeating. I think that is really helpful to name. Um, and certainly, you know, I didn't live through those times. I was born in the 80s. So that isn't something that I have experience of. And that's one of the problems with with social justice, right? That we're constantly having to relearn the lessons that previous generations learned themselves, but weren't really able to pass on. Um, so it is a constant kind of relearning. And I think that sharing is is really valid and, and really helpful. Um, I guess also being aware of, um, yeah, I think I have a question for you actually around that, like being aware of privilege and um, how you would like to interact with other people and like how much space you want to take up in certain places. Is that something that you brought into comedy? Because there's a lot of comedy that is really like punching down at people, um, you know, in other other marginalised groups or in marginalised groups. And something that feels really um, good to me. And I know like a lot of my audience are really interested in like queer comedians, for example, like Sophie Hagen, uh, Jodie Mitchell, people who are really not interested in that. Like they're not punching down. They're actually just being really funny about things that are not, um, hurting other people and I saw one of your sketches around or oh, sketches is it okay to call it a sketch or um <laughs> I don't know what's the best word to call it I saw one of the parts that you um performed around labels and um like clothes labels and how they should have directions on and that didn't feel punching down at all uh it's it's been a journey of growth in that I took four solo shows to Edinburgh and there's a section of my first solo show that I would never do again and I'm horrified I ever did it mm -hmm. and I understood at the time hmm, it was talking about homophobia in African countries and at the time I was justifying it as I'm a gay man I'm kind of bottom of the heap but now I've learned a lot of homophobia was exported to Africa by white missionaries so here am I a white comedian making fun of a continent that was colonised for something that we took there and gave them. Mm -hmm. oh, I'd never do that again. I just want to meet everyone who attended that show and say, I, I wish I could snip that bit of the show. But I did sweat over the politics of every paragraph. And in my head, I thought I was punching up. But as I go through life and I learn more, I've realised there were times you didn't... <laughs> didn't succeed and I've said it publicly like every day for a month in Edinburgh so sorry but he, like the last show that I took which was about guilt and shame I changed director and the director I had I'm going to give her all the credit Laura Lex absolutely comic genius and the show got four or five star reviews in Edinburgh which I'm attributing to Laura Lex now I don't want to describe her as a female director because I'd rather describe her as comedy genius, but she certainly brought a viewpoint I'd not had before using male directors. Suddenly, it became a more inclusive show because she had a different lens on it that otherwise would not have been placed on the script. And even then, halfway through the month, like every day I invited the audience to come to the pub with me afterwards if they wanted to, and we, we didn't even have to discuss the show. We could talk about anything. But one day somebody came up and said, can I ask a favour? Can you stop using female in the show as an adjective? Like a female friend of mine. And they said, the thing is that 
yes, you're using it correctly. It is meant to be an adjective, not a noun. Mm-hmm. But to some men, they will use it. Oh, you look at that female over there. And it's just encouraging a word that's problematic. And I vowed, okay, that night I'll go through the script and I'll replace female for another word. And I went through and do you know what? I just deleted it. I didn't need to replace it. So instead of saying a female friend of mine went through gay conversion therapy and she, it was worse for her, she was put through an exorcism. I just had to go, a friend of mine, you know, it was worse for her. But suddenly in the stories, I felt the status of the, of the characters who weren't men was lifted up. Suddenly they were equal in the stories because I wasn't starting off the story going, and this is about two women. You know, it just yeah. became about humans. And the second half of the month without using the word female, just, in, and again, it might be psychosomatic, but in my head, telling the stories, everybody had the same status. And I wasn't telegraphing at the start of the story, whether it was happening to a man or happening to a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And also like that being the default that like friend is male and female friend denotes a female. (laughs) Anyone else, like we just assume that they're a man. (laughs) So I've got a lot, I feel like I have a lot of apologies to make, but I am learning and I'm trying to do the work and I'm not expecting other people to educate me. But when they do, I'm always extraordinarily grateful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the way, well, it's the ideal way to be. And certainly in comedy, it's very rare. (laughs) It was an interesting show because I started asking consent all the way through the show. Like if I was doing a joke about bereavement, I used to stop and say, has anybody been recently bereaved? Because I don't need to do the next joke and unnecessarily upset anyone. So I just checked and I said, can the house lights not be dark? Can they be at 10%? So I can always see when I ask, and I started three or four times in the show, just going, is the next bit okay? And it brought it, brought 99% of the people in. Some were never going to go with me. I, yeah. I did have walk, I had walkouts. You had walkouts? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, those, <laughs> this was a show talking about guilt, shame, and sexuality, where within the first 15 minutes, I was talking about trying to perform uh, oral sex on a penis that was too big for my mouth. <laughs> And there's one couple sat through that. And then I did another bit that was also sexual and they sat through that. And then about halfway through the show, I talked about two women sharing a shower, one of them wearing pajamas and they got up and walked. And I was just, that's the bit you couldn't stand. Two women sharing a shower, one in pajamas. (laughs) Just tip them over the edge. (laughs) Yeah. So you're fine with all, you know, the the cock-based stuff was but yes two women walking into a shower together oh come on we're going oh my goodness that's so funny (laughs) and I have to ask actually what is um well do you remember any like really good heckles that you got that then you were able to kind of well I (laughs) I don't want to I'm going to rephrase that I was going to ask are there any really good heckles that you've received that then the person has ended up looking like they don't really understand like the point of your work or what's really um the message but I'm not sure if that makes sense as a question um I once had a bit of hate mail um it was a Facebook account that sent me after a show that they had seen they sent me a rather long message and um then deleted their account so there was no reply and at the end it told me I should go fuck myself um because using the argument, I was the very worst kind of gay. Oh. 
And that's always confused me because surely if I could fuck myself, I'd be the very best kind of gay. <laughs> Did they identify why you were the worst kind of gay? Oh, because I used to tell people what they didn't want to hear and then complain about homophobia when they didn't like hearing. Hmm. Okay. I'd say that makes you a pretty good gay, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, and talking of comedy, do you think it's something that you will carry on or is it like on the back burner for now? Um, I will never say never, but right now I'm just frightened. Comedy, it has to be in a room with a low ceiling, so laughter is reflected back down. You want the audience tight and packed, and you want them breathing heavily with laughter. I mean, preferably la- breathing and laughing so hard they're asking you to stop. And that just feels like it should be the last thing to come back as we use out of lockdown. I do miss comedy, I have to say. I really look forward to the day where that is safe to attend again yeah maybe I never say never it is a skill it's in my back pocket but right now I think as I begin to leave the house I might go somewhere rural first Mm -hmm. and then maybe Norway I gradually work my way up to basement low ceiling 50 people in sweat dripping off the ceiling laughing till they cry you know that's probably going to (laughs) be the end of my journey out of this yeah it's also really hard though for um kink communities isn't it because who knows when that will be okay again um because in you know similar to comedy it does require people in small spaces being very close together yeah but I can imagine like shibari dojos I I used before pre-lockdown virus I used to go to those and that's very sedate Mm -hmm. There's a bit of whale music. There's a few bits of scaffolding, pyramids and triangles and squares. And and it's like origami, but with humans and rope. And you can imagine people masked up and two metres apart Mm -hmm. coming up with works of art and then having somebody just spin gracefully as we're all two metres apart, just clapping gently. So I can imagine that kind of rope workshop thing Mm -hmm. coming back. Yeah. That sounds lovely. (laughs) Um, and so with your coaching practice now, over the last year, I guess, is it a year since mm-hmm. you started yeah. training? It is, yes. I had to do something. I was going a bit mad because every day I'd empty the waste paper bins and I'd pull up a dandelion from the lawn and then think my life has no meaning till oh. dinner time, till I cook dinner and then we can start drinking. So I had <laughs> to do something during the day. And a few people who'd been to my kink workshops asked if I would give them kink mentoring online one-to-one. But it turned out very quickly that what people need in private isn't uh, how to do a kink. It's actually when they're in private and they're anonymous and they're opening up, it's I'm not confident in my body to do this kink. It's that level of interaction. Mm -hmm. So you get a very different thing in private than you would get, say, if there's a, a line of people after a workshop and they come up with questions, that's usually quite interactive. And if you've got a reading list, can you show me a knot? But Mm -hmm. actually, when you're in a one-to-one space and they start saying things like, my body has changed. Do you think I can get away with wearing rubber? And what you're working on there is self-confidence, mental health. And I thought, I don't want to do this till I'm trained. So I went away and I, first of all, got a diploma in coaching. And then I still found that a lot of people were coming to me for mental health Mm -hmm. rather than coaching. So then I did a course in first aid for mental health. 
And then I found a lot of people coming to me were neurodiverse. And so then I had to get onboarding with an autistic charity where I realized how much needed unpacking in my own head, my own ableist thinking through having 45 years before I realized I was autistic, just blending in. Mm -hmm. That's not right. That shouldn't be passed on to other people. That's not healthy. So that was very challenging. Doing the, Actually, that was the most challenging of all the training, more than suicide awareness or coaching, was how to unpack my own ableist thinking. Yeah. And how did you realize that you were autistic? You, I know you said you went to a therapist. And did you then like go away, as most of us do, and like furiously research everything and be like, oh, <laughs> or was it then that you, I don't know, did you go straight and have a diagnosis or what, what, what was it? So I was in a relationship for 17 years. And at the end of that, the last three weren't particularly good. And we saw three different couples therapists in the hope that somebody would rescue us. And all three said, no, you've passed the point of no return. We're just going to mitigate the end. And I'm quite slow on the uptake. So it did take like three times to be told. But okay. And then they actually admitted that all they ever did was split couples up. Because by the time any couple came to see them, they'd already passed the event horizon. So, you know, that's all they ever got to do. So when I met new partner that I'm with now, very early on, I said to him, wouldn't it be great if we found a couples counsellor? And I can remember he was really cross with me and very offended. Do you think we've got a problem? And I said, no, that's the exact point. Wouldn't it be great to see someone before we thought we had a problem who could correct the problems or past event horizon black hole so we found this woman and oh this woman just sounds so awful doesn't it goddess we found a goddess who will be in my life forever like in the divorce i want the goddess apologies this woman like really quickly i turned up and said um, she said what do you want to get out of this i said tips and strategies there's a lot about the world i don't understand i need tips and strategies for instance, I brought along with me some transcripts of conversations that have gone wrong, and I need you to tell me why they went wrong and how not to go wrong again, preferably mm. with rules. <laughs> yeah, and she kind of, have you ever taken a test? <laughs> yeah. So I went away and I took three, and the three <laughs> that I took online, two of them I had to pay for, they basically said, oh, you score quite highly, you probably are autistic, but you've learned to mask, so we don't really know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had a few years of describing myself as a little bit autistic because mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was properly the whole way. And then really with joining this charity and unpacking the ableist thinking, I've realised I am 110% autistic. The fact that I masked it just screwed with the results. But when I stopped masking, yeah. One of them. Yeah. And the fact that like there's no such thing as being a little bit autistic, right? Like we yeah. either are or aren't. But that's so it's such a big realization. And I think the thing looking back over your life can be like lots of, I don't know if it was for you, but like for me, loads of light bulbs of like, oh, that makes sense. Or oh, how did I not how did I not pick up on that or whatever? Um, but yeah, the masking thing, like we had, um, we've had other autistic guests. So we have discussed masking. If people don't know what it is, then I won't kind of ask you to explain it again. Oh, no, um, no. oh you want no. to? Okay. 
John is up for the challenge. Go ahead. <laughs> so the charity that I work for uh, would rather I use the word camouflage mm. because the theory is masking implies there's something wrong with you. So you put the mask on so that you fit in. It's mm-hmm. where you pretend to be neurodiverse as much as possible. Neurotypical. Yeah, so yeah, neurotypical. Mm-hmm. But it takes an awful lot of effort. And it, it's exhausting if you're autistic. But talking about it as masking implies I put the mask on because there's something wrong with me mm. and I'm covering myself up. Whereas camouflage is something that soldiers put on to disguise themselves when they go into enemy territory. And there's nothing wrong with the soldier. It's actually the people attacking them in the wrong. But this is their way of disguise. So actually, I camouflage being autistic when I, I've weighed up should I advocate for myself or should I just try and pass? And if I've decided it's less energy in this situation to just try and pass, I'll put on my camouflage. And for me, it's things like, um, you know, pushing a button for a lift and somebody turns up who's a stranger. That four minute conversation is such a lot of work in my head. I have rules to navigate that, like make sure the length of my sentence matches the length of their sentence. Because if they're in a hurry, they want a short answer. And don't give anything personal, because if they're a stranger, that will upset them. And try and talk about the weather if you've been outside. If you haven't been outside, is there a sports game that day that you can make a referral to? If they have a dog, you can say, oh, that's a good-looking dog, but don't say good boy or good girl, because you'll really upset them if you get the gender of their dog wrong. After four minutes, extricate yourself somehow, because this is a nightmare. I'm exhausted telling you. <laughs> I'm exhausted thinking about doing it as well. <laughs> it's so that's much. what we go through, and sometimes I just won't. Um, there's a particular kind of conversation I cannot stand, and it's when outside the house things are said twice. And I know this is a conversation with no point and no information, and I don't even know why we're doing it. All right, all right. How's it going? How's it going? Not so bad, not so bad. All's well, all's well. Anytime I hear things repeated, I know this is meaningless (laughs) and I will leave my husband to do it and I will walk away. And I've learned to go, actually, we're waiting for a parcel because that just gets you out of a multitude of sins. Yeah. (laughs) But I I won't do the repeated conversation because I know then we've entered into rubbish territory. I've never even thought about that before as a thing. I just, I dread small talk, like absolutely dread it and, and find it so exhausting. Yeah, I'm going to look out for the repeating, the repeating things. I think I just don't talk to people I don't know anymore. That's probably, it's quite easy during the pandemic, isn't it? Not to have to talk to people um, that you don't know, but yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the charity and I know that that's the thing that you wanted to share. There may be other things as well, but I always ask people to share something they're enjoying at the moment. And I know that you mentioned um, that working with thriving, thriving autistic was bringing you joy. So um, it'll be great to hear a bit more about it and why it brings you so much joy. So it's uh, it's based in Ireland, but they have clients around the world. So anybody can access them. Uh, Their website, if I'm allowed to give it. Yeah, of course thrivingautistic.org and if you put slash john you can find me and it's a collection of actually autistic practitioners in a variety of different fields that can provide help so as an occupational therapist if you have difficulty with sensory input you can do a sensory audit 
and there's a uh, clinical. Now, I always get confused between psychiatrist, let's just say therapist, but it's mm -hmm. a clinical, can do counseling. And there's somebody who can help with educational needs and somebody who can help with disability assessments. Mm -hmm. And I'm there as a life coach, helping people accept themselves. So if you've recently been diagnosed autistic, that can come with a whole rainbow of emotions that you might even not be able to describe, of fear for the future, worry about a job, concern over your parenting, happy that you finally got a diagnosis, angry at all the times you've been treated badly. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things going on and, and a trait of people who are autistic is sometimes they just can't describe internal, they call it interoception, what's going on inside yourself. It's why autistic children can be quite late potty training because they just don't get the signals to go to the toilet. And why autistic adults, if they're really engrossed in a task, might not eat and drink and then get a headache because they just miss that. And I have a lot of clients who, if I say, how are you feeling? They have no idea. They don't, it's, it's a void. I'm not like that. I've got quite a good internal life, but I don't know where the top of my head is. And so I can cuss myself. All oh, if my eyes can see under a thing, I will go for it and knock myself out. Oh, no. Um, I think that's called proprioception. It's yes. the opposite. It's just around you. I have none of that. So, <laughs> yeah, just I help people unpack a diagnosis and then I give them little challenges. Like I said to somebody yesterday, between this session and the next, I'd like you to try and do one thing for yourself that you wouldn't otherwise have done. And this is what you mean like stimming which is when an autistic person maybe rubs a ribbon or rocks or listens to a piece of music over and over to make themselves feel good. And I said, well, it could be stimming, but also it could be you're in a situation and normally you would have masked or camouflaged, but you just think, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to be me. And the joy on their face of, do you mean I can do that now? I can be me? So I won't, I won't know till the next session if they've had one of those little moments where they've gone, Oh, actually, I, I don't have to put up with this. I can be myself. So actually, as a challenge for everybody listening, you don't have to be autistic to do this. Between this podcast and the next one, try and do one thing that's just for you. And it doesn't matter how big or small it is, but just something that's going to make you smile and think, I did that for me. No such a great, oh, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say that's such a great invitation. Thank you. Um, yeah, and... It's been so great to talk to you and to like connect with another autistic coach, I think, and to like really, um, I don't know, it's just been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for being a guest. And um, if people want to check out your work, I'll share all the links of like places people can find you. But is there one place you'd signpost people to like, first of all? Uh, well, the coaching website is johnpendle.com, which you might be able to look at work. But if you just put my name into Google, because the whole kink international Mr. Leather, you might well get some things that you shouldn't do for work. So just maybe don't Google my name if you're in a public hotspot. But yeah, <laughs> uh, johnpendle.com, that should be like the vanilla Victoria Wood safe, you know, coaching website. Lovely. <laughs> and what's next for you? Oh, you made my hands go sweaty. Oh, I'm sorry. I did that at the beginning <laughs> <Sorry>. as well. <laughs> I have no idea, but I'm just enjoying being where I am now. Yeah. I'm loving it, actually. And maybe as lockdown eases, there might be a little trip to Norway in the future. 
somewhere remote just so that I get my travel legs back without having to deal with crowds. Yeah. Because that's still, I, I'm not quite over that fear yet. Of, and it used to be my livelihood. Like mm-hmm. every weekend I'd be at a kink event and presenting and doing comedy and crowds were my work. And I've gone from that in a year to, oh, no, can I go somewhere remote, please? Yeah, I think so many people have. It's no surprise. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, John. And yeah, it's been great. <laughs> it's been lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. As always, please do go ahead and check out John's work. I always encourage people to check out more about what my guests are doing and follow them in all the places. So you can head to johnpendle.com, as John just said at the end of the interview. That's all from me this week. Next week, I'll be bringing you the final episode from series two. So make sure that you tune in then. I sound like a radio presenter. Make sure you're there. (laughs) Um, It will be downloadable at a later date. Yes, the end. Have a good week, everyone, and take care. Bye.